talking about Christ and the church. Uh, what in the world is Paul talking about there? Well, I, simply put, what Paul is saying in those two verses is this. Christian marriage is an illustration of the gospel. Let me say that again. Christian marriage is an illustration of the gospel. What that means is that there, there should be anybody in this community of San Antonio that sees any member of our church, a Christian male and a Christian female that are married together, vows before God, they should be able to observe that relationship, that marital relationship, and get an understanding, at least be able to, to understand a little bit about the gospel. Now think about how that radically redefines marriage in our culture. Now everybody would, would say, you know, one of the most important ingredients in a marriage is love. Nobody would deny that. Nobody would even argue the point. But what our culture defines as love and what the Bible defines as love are, are poles apart. When the Bible speaks of love, it measures it primarily not by what you want to receive, but what you're willing to give of yourself to somebody else for their good. I mean, how much are you willing to lose for the sake of this person that you're married to? How much of your freedom are you willing to forfeit for this person that you're married to? How much of your time and your physical energy and your emotional energy are you willing to invest for the, for the good of the person that you're married to? And on top of that, how willing are you, are you to, to be unhappy until the issues that are between you are resolved in a godlike way, in a, in a godly way, between you and the person that you're married to? I mean, that completely, radically redefines the way that we think about the marriage between a married man and a married woman. One of the most widely held views in our culture today is that uh, romantic love is essential, that romantic love is all important, that you've got to have it if you're going to be a happy human being, but that it doesn't last forever. But that that kind of love is not something that, that lasts throughout a lifetime. Now listen... The Bible does not neglect the deep emotional component of love, but the biblical version of what love is, the definition of that love, goes well beyond that. The biblical vision of love goes, goes beyond just the romantic feelings of love to the place of sacrificial commitment for the good of the spouse, for the good of, 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 of your wife, the, for the good of your husband. To see love as merely emotional is to pit desire against duty in such a way that it's destructive to the relationship. Another way that you can refer to a relationship that is just built on the desire, just the emotional aspect of love, is to call it a consumer relationship. Marriage is not a consumer relationship. Now, you know as well as I do, throughout history, there have always been these consumer relationships. Such relationships last as long as the vendor meets the needs of the consumer at an acceptable cost. But... If another vendor shows up with a better deal, then what do you do? You change vendors. Now that's what happens in a marriage when you begin to pit uh, desire against duty. But disciples who are steeped in the Word of God and understand the biblical vision of love understand that marriage is not based on consumption, but it is based on a covenant. The difference is that in a covenantal relationship, different from a consumer relationship, is that the good of the relationship takes precedence over the immediate needs of the individual. 
That's why these vows are so important. Marriage is more than just a piece of paper. When, when, and, you know, that's really why in so many cases when a, one person says to another, I love you, but let's not mess it up and, and ruin it by getting married. That person is really saying that I don't love you enough to close off all of my options. And he's saying, or she's saying, that I don't love you enough to give up everything, including myself, for you. Now, he may love you, or she may love you, to a certain degree. But it's not the kind of love that makes a marriage. In marriage, those vows between a husband and a wife are done before God. In, in, in marriage, these vows are done before witnesses. And these marriage vows are not just about a present declaration. You know, I just happen to love you today, honey, so we're getting married. But those vows are a promise for the future. The vows are a promise of what, you, what you're promising to become, to be. And that's why at the end of the Song of Solomon, which is a book about the relationship between a man and a woman, Solomon says in chapter 8, verse 6, Place me like a seal over your heart. You're like a seal on your arm. For love is, a, is as strong as death. It's jealousy, unyielding as the grave. It burns like blazing fire, like a mighty flame. Many waters cannot quench love, not this kind of love, and cannot wash it away. Now that's a, that's a, that's a huge question, right? Because that's a relationship we want. We want to be accepted in better and, and worse times, in prosperity and, and poverty. And sickness and enough. We want to be, we want somebody to choose us very much in the way that God chooses us in Christ, to love us like that. And that's how marriage becomes an illustration of the gospel. So, how do you make your spouse the seal over your heart? Two things. Number one, you've got to commit to godliness. I've been making this point all along in this series on, on being a disciple daily that. That to be a disciple doesn't mean that all of a sudden I choose to believe this about the creation of the world as opposed to that. Or what I'm going to do on Sunday mornings, what I, what I used to do was to lay in bed and then you know, watch, watch sports all day. Now what it is is I, I get together. It, it's more than just, just coming to worship. It's about a transformed life. It's a radical lifestyle. It's a revolutionized, it's a transformed way of living that's based on the understanding that I am being called back into image-bearing of Jesus of Nazareth. Paul will say in Romans chapter 8, verse 29, that before the creation of the world, he predestined that we would be conformed to the image of Christ. But the specific task is to think, how does that happen with marriage? Now, one of the things, quite frankly, church, we've got to do is we've got, you know, none of the people that show up on television ever invented marriage. God did. Why do we turn to secular wisdom to live out a divine institution? We've got to start asking God to be in control of our marriages now. Not just, not just when it's convenient, but to be in, in, in charge of the kind of love that we've been called to have with our spouses. Now we go back to the text in Ephesians 5, a little bit before the text that the Torah read, to get our understanding of where Paul is headed. But notice what he says beginning in verse 18. He says, don't be drunk on wine which leads to debauchery. It's not your lifestyle. Instead, this is your lifestyle. Be filled with the Spirit. Speak to one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Sing and make music in your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks to God the Father for everything that you have in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. 
In your Bibles, I want you to underline that phrase, be filled with the Spirit. To be filled with the Spirit means to be controlled in your life by God. And Paul uses three participles, actually, in this text to describe what that means. Number one, you make God a priority in your life as you worship Him in verse 19. As, a, as an image bearer, as a disciple, as, as a Christian, you make God a priority by worshiping Him. Number two, verse 20, you become a person of gratitude. And then number three, in verse 21, you, you're going to be humble out of reverence of who God is in your life. And after describing that life in these three short ways, he makes a specific application in marriage, and he begins with the wives. And he says, after, after those, those three things, being humble, being thankful, worshiping God, wives, verse 22, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is a Savior, of the Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Quite frankly, and unfortunately, are too many wives who do not respect their husbands as head of the, head of the household. I have a friend uh, who, who died six or seven years ago telling the story that uh, he was going to perform a wedding for a couple, and the bride said to him right before the wedding began, he said, hey, could you, you know, when we get to those vows, would you please keep that wife submitting to the husband stuff out of those vows? And he looked her straight in the eye and he said, you know what, you need to get yourself another preacher. You know, there's no command here for, the, for the, the wives to love their husbands. But there is a command for them to submit to them. Now, I don't know why this is so, but guys do not feel loved by their wives when they are disrespected. A man wants, a man wants to really feel that respect. A man wants to feel respected because he's capable. I mean, that's one of the reasons why we never ask for directions, even though we know we're lost out in the woods. There's a song, or, you know, uh, you've heard me talk about that song, Respect, R-E-S-P-E-C-T, by Aretha Franklin, right? What, right? Guess what? That song was written by a man. Do you know who wrote it? Otis Redding. Oh, somebody knows, knows their R&B. Otis Redding wrote that song, recorded it on his third album. The song is about a man wanting respect and, respect and recognition from a woman. Now, Aretha Franklin came and actually sang it pretty well and, and changed it later. But the song originally was about a guy that wanted to have respect and recognition from his wife. And I guess she didn't listen because his next song was sitting on the dock of the bay. But... <laughs> Now, I don't know why it's so, but we want to be respected. We want to be thought of as, as capable. We, we want to be thought of as, 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 as somebody that, that, you know, that, has, that has something going for him. Now, listen, ladies, it's not, your, it's not your job to keep your husband humble. It's God's job. And you respect his judgment, and that doesn't mean that you always have to agree with it but you respect his judgment, you respect his abilities, you respect him in public when he's present, you respect him in public when he's not present, you remember that this is a command. You are to respect your husband as a disciple of Jesus of Nazareth. Now, where we fall short, I, I think, in our culture is that we always think that respect is something that you earn. Now, when it comes to husbands and wives... I have to ask, you know, where is that found in Scripture? 
In fact, the opposite is true. The verse that says someone has to earn your respect is next to the one that says God helps those who help themselves and cleanliness is next to godliness. Listen, ladies, you remember your vows before God. As disciples, you're going through re-education, learning what it means to be a godly woman. Your, under, your understanding of what it means to live out your life as a disciple it, it, is completely being reoriented. You remember your vows before God to honor and respect your husband by submitting to his leadership in the home. Now that I'm off the hook with the ladies, let's turn to the men. Verse 25. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In this same, what? Way. In this same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated his own body, but he feeds it and he cares for it, just as Christ does the church, for we are members of his body. Bottom line, husbands are to love their wives. Just like Christ loves the church, which means, guys, that you are to give yourself up completely to your wives, for your wives. That kind of love is called dying to self in order to bless another. Now, here's the thing. Guys, if you don't love your wife, then whose fault is it? Not your wife's. You're choosing to not live a spirit-led life. That's what that's all about. The command for wives are to respect their husbands. The command for the husbands for the wives is to love them. And if you don't love them, then whose problem is that? Well, it's the wives, obviously, because she's not receiving that kind of blessing. But deep down, whose, whose problem is it? It's the guy's because he's deciding that he's not going to love his wife the way that Christ loves the church. Think about all those implications and ramifications. You're choosing not to live that spirit-led life that Paul talked about before he gets to this section on marriage. But the question is, so where do you get that kind of motivation? Where does the motivation for that kind of life come from? It comes from Christ himself. This is the Christ way. What is it that he did? He didn't count equality with God something to be held on to at all costs. But he emptied himself, that is, he took the form of the servant by becoming flesh. And in that fleshly human man form, he became a servant. And not just the kind of servant that at the end of the day is finished with his, with, with his work. He became a servant and was obedient to God even to the point of death. And not just death, but death on the cross. That's love. That's love. Death on a cross. Your wife cannot frustrate your purpose for living if you are living the Christ-like life, fellas. And so number two, not only do you commit to this godliness, to this kind of living with your wife, this kind of living with your husband, but number two, you commit to a peerless relational intimacy with your spouse. God the Father has a perfect relationship with God the Son and the God the Spirit. God enjoys the community that is within the Trinity. The oneness is experienced with, within that Trinity. 
And that kind of oneness is experienced within the one body, which is the church. And that oneness is also experienced within marriage. Marriage is, 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 is not just God's invention. It's, it's also His gift to people to experience and enjoy a special kind of oneness. And to try and experience this, de- this degree of community, this kind of oneness, without commitment can be disastrous. And that's why in Genesis chapter 2, verse 24, Moses says, you know, it's for this reason that a man will leave his father and mother, be united to his wife, and they will become one flesh. And that word united there, I've talked about this before, that word united in Hebrew is the, the word devak, which means to be, to be glued together like plywood. It means to become one like that. The many are becoming one. It's being glued together, united like that. And without commitment, there is no genuine and authentic I love you in that kind of marriage. You know, I said I, I love you to a lot of girls in high school. But it was because there was no commitment to them that those relationships did not last. I mean, it's pretty immature, obviously. And, and you know, without that commitment... You know, we can only stay together as long as there were no disagreements between us. But those disagreements would come because, you know, the maturity level of a 16-year-old guy is about, you know, that of a 3-year-old. And how long do you think it was going to last between two kids in high school where there was no kind of commitment at all? And as soon as there was a disagreement between myself and a girl maybe I was dating, you know, it was time to move on to the next winner in the Mark Apsher lottery. Without that commitment, there was only indulgence. Without that commitment, there is only that indulgence. And what makes marriage a special relationship is the commitment you make in a wedding vow to stay with your spouse, whatever the circumstances might be. And listen, friend, you know, we've got to stop believing that sex is intimacy. It's intimate. But it's a byproduct of the intimacy that comes from two people who in vows have committed themselves for life to be there, whatever the circumstances, to be together for as long as they're alive. And that sexual relationship that they have based on that, those kinds of vows and that kind of intimacy is a celebration. It's a byproduct of that kind of work. A marriage is this relationship of commitment that makes it safe for you to let your spouse enter into who you really are as a person and not reject you. Commitment in marriage is, 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 is the great blessing for imperfect spouses. I just think for a minute about what it what it takes for that commitment to live. I don't know about you, but, but I do some things. That Ellen has to forgive me on a regular basis. Without her forgiveness, there, there are no aptures. And vice versa. And, and, and patience. You know, I, I wasn't born mature, and I'm still struggling to kind of get there myself. And unless there's some degree of, of patience in our relationship, there are no answers because I'd have frustrated her a long time ago. And compassion. 
you know, believe it or not, I don't always make the right choice. I don't make right decisions. I don't always say the right thing, even though I've been preaching for 30 years. Words are my life, but I mess up. And if there's not some gentleness in there and some kindness in there and some mercy in there when I'm sick or when she's ill or when she's not at her best or I'm not at my best, how are there going to be the rapture? And the same is true for every couple in here. If the gospel somehow doesn't make itself known in the way that you relate to each other, these marriages are pitting desire against duty, and that becomes a destructive way to try to live together. In fact, it doesn't work. But when all of a sudden we understand that what we're living and and experiencing and enjoying and, and, and living for all of these years and years and years together until death do us part is actually just the gospel that saved us, changing us, and turning us into people that, that, that live the gospel and share that gospel and, and are habitual with that gospel in the ways that we interact with our spouses. Then all of a sudden we see our marriages are where two people are actually through that mercy and grace and peace and kindness and gentleness and faithfulness begin to move towards each other in the way that the gospel moves us closer to God. And the way that the gospel takes a church like this where there are African-American black people and Hispanic brown people and, and Anglo-Gringo white people and people from Asian countries and, and people from, from all over the world because of Christ, because of the gospel, are bringing us together and making us one. The church's natural number is what? One Lord, one baptism, one faith, one body. Our natural number is one. Ephesians chapter 2, God takes the two and makes the one in the church because of the cross. That experience of the Trinity, we get a taste of it in the community that we share in the church and we get a taste of it in the community that we share in the peerless commitment to each other in marriage with vows made to God and the, and, and, and the, the teachings of Scripture as our guide. As disciples, we live differently. And as disciples, we live differently as married people. Does that make sense? Does that make sense? Ben's going to lead us in a song right now. And maybe you want to respond to the gospel. You know, one of the most important parts of our assembly is this part right here. You know, we've had an opportunity to sing and to praise God and we've prayed to Him We've greeted each other. We've gathered around the table and have been reminded that, you know, we, we have been bought with a price, that there is a reason why we call ourselves Christian. It's not a name that we can just snatch out of the air and, and, and label ourselves with it. It is a name that we wear because we have been bought by the blood of Jesus. And we've heard His Word read and we, we've, we've heard it taught and our mind is full of the way of God and, and of the way of the Christ. And maybe you want to respond to that. And that's why this is really an important part. This invitation is a really important part of our assembly. It's not, a, it's not a time for us to end the assembly. It's a time for us to remember that some people are beginning their lives with Christ. And it's a way for us to remember that there are brothers and sisters in the oneness that is the MacArthur Park Church of Christ. That there is a oneness that when one weeps, we all weep. When one rejoices, we all rejoice. And it's not a time for us to, to, uh, to, to, to take off but it's a time for us to really recognize, as we do in communion, the oneness and the relationship that we share with one another in the body of Christ. And as we sing this song, we're going to have some of our shepherds down here at the front.
And if there's any way that our church can minister to you, it may be to give yourself to Jesus this morning, to be baptized, to have your sins washed away. It may be to have the prayers of the congregation to be lifted up for you because of something you're struggling with. Whatever it might be, you feel that stirring inside of you. Our, our, our shepherds are going to be down here at the front. What we ask is during the singing of the song, you come and talk to these shepherds, and let's do that now as we stand and sing together. More about Jesus would I know, more of His grace to others show, more of His saving fullness see, more of His love.